hear me all right? Is, is that better? Is that better? <clears throat> Welcome to the 33rd annual Eunice Belgen Memorial Lectures. We're grateful to Eunice's family and friends for making this distinguished lecture series possible and for enabling us to commemorate and celebrate Eunice's life by continuing the work she loves so well. We're also delighted that uh, uh, Eunice's aunt, Dorothy Belgum Knight, is here with us again today. And I think, Dorothy, that you've made every lecture all, this is the 33rd. <laughs> um, Eunice fell in love with philosophy here at St. Olaf. After graduating in 1967, she went on to earn her PhD from Harvard University. The Harvard University philosophy department chose her dissertation on the topic of the weakness of the will as the best completed that year in 1976, entitled Knowing Better, an account of Acrasia. This was later published by Garland Publishing Company in 1990. Eunice worked from the conviction that philosophy really does have something to do with how we live our lives. Uh, from its very first sentence, Eunice's dissertation reflects this point of view. This is the opening sentence of her dissertation. This, uh, which still, by the way, resonates with me. This thesis is the result of a practical as well as a theoretical interest in the regrettably familiar phenomenon of acrasia otherwise known as knowing the better and doing the worse. Eunice went on to teach at Trinity College and at the College of William and Mary, where she continued to exercise her conviction that philosophy matters. The groundbreaking course on the philosophy of the sexes that she developed and team taught with James Harris also exemplified that conviction. She contributed so much to her profession and to her students. While the Eunice Belgium Memorial Lectures may be on any topic, we do make a special effort to choose topics that particularly interested her. I know that she would be keenly interested in the topic of this year's uh, lectures. And this year, we're delighted to welcome Dr. Rachel Cohen of uh, State University of New York at Albany speaking on the sentiment-based moral philosophy of Hume. And now I'll ask my colleague Corliss Swain uh, to introduce her to you. It is again a great pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Rachel Cohen, though for some of you uh, she won't require an introduction since you met her yesterday. Professor Cohen is an internationally known Hume scholar who specializes in ethics, Hume's philosophy, and the philosophy, moral philosophy, and the philosophy of action. She's published numerous articles on Hume's philosophy and also on issues in bioethics, and she contributed the essay on Hume's moral and political philosophy to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. 
She is the author of two books, Hume's Morality, Feeling and Fabrication, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2008. This is a monograph that explores Hume's metaethics and his theory of the artificial virtues. She's also published Hume, Moral and Political Philosophy, which is an anthology of previously published essays uh, published by Ashgate Dartmouth Press in 2001. Rachel Cohen received her PhD from UCLA her, with a dissertation entitled The Rationality of Moral Conduct, a Preliminary Study, which was supervised by Philippa Foote. Professor Cohen began her teaching career at Pittsburgh College, a nationally ranked liberal arts college in the Los Angeles area. She's taught at Mount St. Mary's College, the University of California at Irvine, Stanford University, and she is now at the University of Albany, SUNY, where she teaches graduate courses in moral theory and undergraduate courses in all areas of ethics and early modern philosophy. Rachel is not only a first-rate philosopher and Hume scholar, she's also a wonderful person whose wise words, wry sense of humor, and generous gift of time, even late into the night when she had to teach the next day, helped see me through a year of cancer treatment. David Hume was known to some of his friends as Le Bon David, and Rachel follows in his footsteps. So if anyone is qualified to speak about David Hume's views about virtue, both, both because of academic training and talents and due to an intimate personal familiarity with virtue, it's Rachel Cohen. Her talk today is entitled Evaluations and Urges, Hume on the Indirect Passions and the Moral Sentiments. Please join me in welcoming her. Again, Professor Swain, for that magnificent introduction, and if I were to hear it a third time, I might start to believe it. <laughs> um, you have a handout, which, unlike yesterday's handout, if you were here yesterday, has only a few passages on it, and just a list of the parts of the talk. And then on the back, you have this rather low-tech diagram that you might want to refer to. So my title today is Evaluations and Urges, Hume on the Indirect Passions and the Moral Sentiments. I originally was calling it Assessments and Urges, and then I realized that for academics that had a terrible connotation. <laughs> so part A is an overview. Hume makes a systematic division of the passions or affections, what today we call emotions, into two categories, direct and indirect. Given the great variety of human emotions, what led him to make this division and to place various passions on one side of it or the other? And why does he treat it as such an important division? He devotes an enormous amount of space to this in his writings. The answers to these questions are not clear from the text. I will propose an interpretation that distinguishes the two kinds of passions by whether or not our experience of them involves a fundamental redirection of our attention. This redirection, I'll argue, is what distinguishes the indirect from the direct passions, and it's important because it enables Hume to give an account of how we use our emotions to evaluate persons, first in non-moral ways, and ultimately in our moral judgments, which for Hume are the products of sentiment. The interpretation I propose resolves some textual puzzles. It explains why Hume claims that the indirect passions in themselves are not motives. And it answers the question whether the moral sentiments are direct or indirect affections. 
Although Hume argues at length that we have moral sentiments and that it is the moral sentiment, the moral sentiments rather than our reason that enable us to discover virtue and vice, good and evil in persons and their actions, he does not explicitly say where the moral sentiments fall in his taxonomy of the passions. However, my interpretation also gives rise to a difficulty regarding the moral sentiments how they could be or could cause motives to act, which Hume says they do. In the end of the talk, I'll offer an explanation of how, given my interpretation, the moral sentiments not only provide our moral evaluations of people and their characters, but are able to influence us up to a point to act as morality requires. So part B is Hume's taxonomy of the passions and its quandaries. In his great work, A Treatise of Human Nature, and his much shorter dissertation on the passions, Hume gives an original taxonomy of the passions, one unlike those of his predecessors, with this distinction between the direct and the indirect passions or affections serving as its main bifurcation. So here you can look at the back of your handout and see how he divvies them up. The group of direct passions includes desire and aversion, joy and grief, hope and fear. He also places in this direct category, or perhaps counts as causes of some passions in this category, a list of natural instincts, which includes both such bodily instincts as hunger and lust, and also some psychological instincts such as, and I quote, the desire of punishment to our enemies and of happiness to our friends, close quote. He calls the first of these, desire of punishment to our enemies, anger, or sometimes resentment. And the second he calls benevolence the desire of happiness to our friends. This is the natural instinct of benevolence, which is not to be confused with the virtue of benevolence or kindness, which I discussed yesterday. Sometimes Hume also seems to include among the natural instincts the love of life and kindness to children. Okay, so that's the direct passions. The indirect passions on the other side of that tree include pride, Humility, by which he means roughly shame or low self-esteem. Love, which he construes very broadly so as to include admiration and liking. Hatred, which he also construes very broadly to, to include uh, dislike and contempt, for example. As well as envy, malice, and ambition. He devotes most of his analytical attention to those first four indirect passions, pride, humility, love, and hatred, which is why I didn't Put the other ones on your handout. Hume's vague about what distinguishes the passions into these two categories. He makes such unhelpful remarks as these. These, these quotes are not on your handout because they are indeed unhelpful. <laughs> Quote, by direct passions, I understand such as arise immediately from good or evil, from pain or pleasure. By indirect, such as proceed from the same principles, but by the conjunction of other qualities. This distinction I cannot at present justify or explain any farther. <laughs> and then from the dissertation on the passions, he says, besides those passions above mentioned, which arise from a direct pursuit of good and aversion to evil, um, by the way, by, in this context, when he says good and evil, he, he's already made it clear he means just pleasure and pain. He's not using those words in a moral sense at all. So, besides those which arise from a direct pursuit of good and aversion to evil, there are others of a more complicated nature and imply a more than one view or consideration. That's it. End of quote. 
His full analysis shows that he thinks direct passions are produced by a simple psychological mechanism and indirect passions by a much more complicated one. But he does not reveal what led him to think that hope, for example, is caused in a simple way, while pride would have to be caused in a more complex way. If we consider the vast assortment of human emotions, it's not obvious why one would wish to group pride and hatred together and insist that they have a complex provenance, or why one would group fear with joy and claim they are caused more simply. Hume's predecessors grouped the passions in entirely different ways. Hobbes, for example, groups what Hume would call pride and humility with indignation, emulation, revengefulness, hope, lust, and love, which for Hume would cut across different categories. So Hume did not simply adopt an existing distinction, but created a new one. What do the emotions in each of Hume's groups have in common with one another that differentiates them from those in the other group? The philosophers of the 17th and 18th centuries have very different reasons for writing about the passions. Hume, for his part, wants to identify the basic causal mechanisms at work in the generation of the passions. Ideally, he hopes to find a parsimonious list of basic causal laws that govern the operation of all human sentiments. In his effort to do so, he presupposes the account of the workings of the mind that he set out in book one of the treatise. The theory that the contents of the mind consists of excuse me, ideas and impressions, the contention that all our simple ideas are copied from and caused by prior impressions, and the claim that our ideas spontaneously associate with one another in accordance with certain relations they bear to one another. In explaining the causal origins of the passions, he does not, by the way, investigate physiological causes at all, but limits his attention to mental states, impressions and ideas that trigger our affections. I guess the, the physiological causes are for the natural philosophers to deal with, that is to say, the scientists. Um, in particular, Hume tries to identify the characteristic causes and effects in terms of which we actually understand the various passions. His position is that each passion in itself is a simple and uniform impression. So for example, fear and love are unanalyzable feelings that differ from one another in their phenomenological quality. We all know what they are because we've felt them before. And it's not possible to build up the idea of fear or love out of other ideas derived from different experiences. Passions do have hedonic tone. Some are pleasant and some unpleasant. But they're nonetheless simple feelings. So he faces a challenge. How to account for the fact that certain types of passions take only certain kinds of objects? Pride, for example, always has to do with something we believe to be connected with ourselves. Pardon me. All right, I'm picking up. Good. Okay, so pride has, always has to do with something we believe to be connected with ourselves. But if your pride is just a simple feeling, why can't it be directed to something that you realize is entirely unrelated to you? Why can't you be proud of the planet Mars, even though you know you did not make it, you don't own it, you're no more connected with it than anyone else? If we take Hume at his word that the feeling of pride has no parts, then the representation of yourself 
is not part of the feeling of pride. I hope I didn't. Yeah, that's better. So what restricts this simple feeling to items related to the self? Hume handles this feature of our emotions by appealing to their causes and effects. Pride is a feeling we're all familiar with, which is caused by something that is closely related to the self and, and, and is also a source of pleasure. And it's a feeling that directs our attention to or causes us to think of the self. Similarly, hope is a feeling with a felt quality with which we are all familiar and which is caused by the expectation of a pleasure or benefit whose occurrence we believe to be probable. Or so I will understand Hume's position for purposes of this talk. There is disagreement about this, but that's how I'm interpreting him. Hume regards each of these passions as having a characteristic or identifying type of cause and type of effect, one without which each of them would not be that feeling. So a pleasant feeling that's caused by something you regard as entirely unrelated to yourself is not pride, for it lacks pride's identifying cause. Okay, part C, the foundation of Hume's distinction between indirect and direct passions. The main feature of the indirect passions that Hume thinks sets them apart from the direct passions is that they, the indirect ones, have a cause distinct from their object. The cause of a passion is that idea or impression in the mind that excites it. By the object of a passion, Hume means that to which the passion directs our attention or what the passion is about. Consider pride, for example. Hume claims that the cause of pride is always something that is pleasant, more precisely something that has a quality that is pleasant and is closely associated with the self. So for example, if I look at a beautiful house, the beauty of the house gives me or anyone aesthetic pleasure. But if the house is mine, then that aesthetic pleasure plus my awareness that the house is closely associated with me combine to cause in me a second pleasant feeling, pride. This identifies the cause of pride. But Hume says the object of pride, that to which the feeling is directed or on which it focuses the mind, is distinct from the cause. The object of pride is myself. Whenever I'm proud, I feel pleased with myself. The same is true of humility or shame. I feel displeased with myself. He says, quote, here the view always fixes when we are actuated by either of these passions, close quote. With love and hatred of a certain kind, Hume claims the object of the passion is always some other person, some thinking, feeling, being other than myself. So we have one pair of passions, pride and humility, that have self as their object, but have distinct causes. And another pair of passions, love and hatred, that have another person as their object, and also distinct causes. In each pair, one passion is pleasant, pride and love, and the other is unpleasant, humility and hatred. In a moment, we'll consider further what the object of a passion means, but so far, it seems that Hume thinks that pride, in order to be pride, must involve a focus on oneself. And humility or shame, too, in order to be that emotion, must involve a focus on oneself. And he sees a parallel with love and hatred, at least of the kind he's interested in. The kind of feeling one has for a friend, or a mentor, or an idol, um, or, or the kind of feeling one has for an enemy, or a villain. These 
focus on another person. Many mental states have intentionality. Here, I won't explore the present-day controversies regarding this difficult concept. So let's adopt a simple, if only rudimentary, definition of intentionality. We'll define it as the directedness of the mind upon something or the aboutness of, a men of mental states. I cribbed that from Tim Crane's article in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy called Intentionality. And that's how he starts. That's the rudimentary definition. And then if you want to know more about intentionality, you read the rest of the article. This is pretty clearly what Hume means when he writes about the object of a passion. Hume certainly thinks passions have intentional objects in this sense. Direct passions do. We are afraid of something. We desire something. We hope for something. As we've seen, so do indirect passions. So for Hume, the intentional object of a passion seems to be what the passion causes us to think of or attend to. Now, since Hume makes a point of saying that indirect passions, unlike direct passions, have objects distinct from their causes, and since direct passions do have objects, it follows that direct passions have objects that are the same as their causes. And that seems frequently to be the case. Consider fear and joy. If you're afraid of contracting swine flu, the cause of your fear is the prospect of contracting swine flu. And what you're afraid of, the object of your fear, is the same thing, that you may contract swine flu. When the cause of your joy is that you won money on a horse race, the object of your joy, what you are joyful about, is that you won money on a horse race. Hume thinks pride is not like this. Consider pride in your beautiful house. The cause of your pride is the beautiful house. But the object of pride, according to Hume, is yourself. As we see in the following passages, Hume argues that in the case of pride, humility, love, and hatred, there is a shift of our attention away from the cause of the passion and onto something else. And these quotes that I'm going to read you are on your handout under the heading, under the heading um, about the indirect passions. We must make a distinction betwixt the cause and the object of these passions, pride and humility betwixt that idea which excites them and that to which they direct their view when excited. The first idea that is presented to the mind is that of the cause or productive principle. This excites the passion connected with it. And that passion, when excited, turns our view to another idea, which is that of self. Here, then, is a passion placed betwixt two ideas, of which the one produced it and the other is produced by it. The first idea, therefore, represents the cause. The second, the object of the passion. Okay, that's from uh, Treatise Book 2, Part 1, Section 2, Paragraph 4. Then the next passage is, here at last the view always rests when we are actuated by either of these passions, namely on the self. And finally, in order to excite pride, there are always two objects we must contemplate, namely the cause, or that object which produces pleasure, and the self. But joy has only one object necessary to its production, namely, that which gives pleasure. Now we see how Hume differentiates the indirect from the direct passions. With the direct passions, there's no need for a turning or shift of attention. Our attention is always fixed on that idea that causes the passion, and that idea is also the object of the passion. Because the indirect passions require us to think about two distinct things, the causal mechanism that produces them is more complicated than that for producing the direct passions. All right, 
Now we turn to D, reasons to think Hume's distinction is a good one. I would say some reasons to think Hume's distinction is a good one. There are plenty of, plenty of weaknesses um, in Hume's distinction. Is Hume right about this shift of attention? Intuitively, why might it seem that pride, humility, love, and hatred have objects distinct from their causes? Let's begin with pride. When you feel pride, typically you're proud of something in particular, your work, your looks, your family. But Hume seems right that when you feel proud, say, of something you made, your attention is not limited to the object you made. In virtue of having made this fine object, you feel pleased with yourself. Pride essentially involves a satisfaction with yourself as a person, even if it's just insofar as you have some particular accomplishment or possession. This is so even if you're proud of someone else, your parent or child, for example. Any young person who earns good grades or sings beautifully in the choir gives pleasure. But if my own child does these things, these things have a further effect on me because of his relation to myself. They give me a certain self-satisfaction. This is what it is to take pride in the accomplishments of another rather than merely to appreciate them. The focus on the self seems even clearer, I think, with humility or shame. You feel ashamed of something in particular about yourself as well, of course. Your failures, or appearance, or disreputable actions, whatever it may be. But humility is not just being displeased with this feature. It's being displeased with yourself on account of this feature. We do sometimes say, I'm ashamed of myself. But this expression is redundant. To be ashamed is to be displeased with oneself. Even if I'm ashamed of another, such as a parent or child, I'm not merely displeased with the other's bad manners or wicked behavior, for example, but I experience a certain dissatisfaction with myself on that person's account. So pride and humility do seem to involve two elements, both an awareness of an item that's related to the self and an attitude toward the self as a whole. Since the feelings themselves, according to Hume, are simple, Hume seems to have reasoned that their causal properties have to be complex. Furthermore, pride and humility are inevitably attitudes toward a person. You can fear a mugger or an earthquake, or a person or a non-person, but you could only be proud or ashamed of yourself. Thus, the causes of pride and humility, such as houses, accomplishments, and so on, do really seem to be distinct from their object. <clears throat> Hume maintains that there is a particular kind of love that only takes persons as its object. And here I think he's, he's not talking about everything we might call love, but a particular kind of love or admiration or liking. He does not idealize this kind of love. He acknowledges that you can love someone because he's wise or virtuous, or merely because he's good looking, rich, or even simply familiar. But those certain features of the person cause your love or admiration. The love you feel is for the person, not merely for the feature. And keep in mind that the word love is supposed to be understood broadly to cover admiration and liking. Hume thinks hatred works the same way. And there again, the term hatred is used very broadly. It's one thing to dislike a trait that someone has, such as laziness or a tendency to talk too loudly. We all have things we dislike about our spouses, our friends. In those cases, we dislike the trait, but not the person. However, it's also possible to hate someone because of a trait he has. But when we do, it's not just the trait we hate, it's the person. We hate him because of that trait, 
And of course, it might be something important or trivial that inspires our hatred. But it is he, that person, that is the object of our hatred. Okay, so some, some, I've made some remarks to first try to persuade you that Hume's distinction has some intuitive plausibility. Okay, part E, the indirect passions as evaluations of persons. What Hume noticed about pride, humility, and the kind of love and hatred in which he was interested is that they're evaluations of persons. Pride and shame are assessments of ourselves as good or bad. And the kind of love and hatred that are directed to persons are also assessments of those other persons as good or bad in some way, morally good or bad, or good or bad in other respects. For, for, sorry, for Hume, pride, humility, love, and hatred are four familiar passions that, like all the sentiments, can be explained entirely in terms of natural psychological mechanisms. And yet, judgments of the value of persons result from these mechanisms. That's a very suggestive outcome. For Hume, all the passions except the natural instincts arise from pleasure or pain. And so there is a limited sense in which all these passions can be thought of as evaluative in a way. They register that something is or is likely to be naturally good, that is pleasant, or naturally bad, that is painful. Hume seems to take over a distinction that Francis Hutcheson made between what's naturally good, which Hutcheson said is just pleasure, and what's morally good. Okay. But the direct passions are evaluative only in a quite simple way. They track the agent's pleasure or pain, that kind of good and evil. Hume says the direct passions, quote, arise from the direct pursuit of good or aversion to evil, close quote. That's it from the dissertation on the passions. The direct passions are caused by the thought of our own pleasure or pain and focus our attention on those. So although I said earlier that what you fear is a mugger or an earthquake, it's more accurate to say that for Hume, what you really fear is the pain that these are likely to cause you. The direct passions are, roughly speaking, urges to get or avoid something. Now, according to Hume, the instincts are different from the other direct passions, since he thinks the instincts do not arise from the prospect of pain or pleasure for oneself. And since they do not pursue pleasure or pain, they're not evaluative even in the limited way that the other direct passions are. But the instincts are drives to obtain or avoid something, whether for oneself, such as food, or for another, such as good to friends and harm to enemies. So all the direct passions, including desire and fear, as well as the instincts, are urges to get or to avoid. The indirect passions are evaluative in quite a different way. They are not states of craving or seeking to obtain pleasure or pain for oneself or even for another. The indirect passions are not urges. They don't focus one's attention on one's own pleasure or pain or on any goal. They focus one's attention instead on a whole person. So even pride, which is a pleasant feeling about oneself, is not focused on how to get pleasure. Pride, humility, love, and hatred have to do with what is good or bad, but they are directed to persons. And those persons are found by these feelings to be good or bad. The feelings themselves constitute evaluations of persons. 
Now, Hume ultimately plans to give a naturalistic account of the moral evaluation of persons. He's not giving it here, but that comes later in the treatise. An account that explains how we judge people's characters to be virtuous or vicious, and an account that it's naturalistic, it makes no appeal to divine law or to any conception of the good for man arising from our human essence and evident to us by the light of reason. He's hoping to leave all of that out. No final causes, none of that. He hopes to explain the psychological process of moral evaluation as the result of a certain sort of unbiased and reflective exercise of our imagination that generates particular sorts of sentiments, the moral sentiments. For a philosopher with such a plan in mind, the account of the indirect passions is a clever way to start. He could have tried to show that moral evaluation is a form of desire. And some today have tried, who, who are naturalists about ethics, have tried to explain moral evaluation as a form of desire. Or he could have tried to, to explain moral evaluation as based on the drive to get pleasure and avoid pain. But he seems to have found this approach implausible. Instead, I propose that Hume's strategy is to show first that we human beings have some non-moral emotions that are person evaluating already and then to analyze the moral sentiments according to a similar pattern. The moral sentiments, too, are person-evaluating emotions that do not seek pleasure or pain avoidance. Hume asserts that by their own natures, the four passions of pride, humility, love, and hatred do not actuate the will. They are not motives. He says that even love and hatred don't themselves activate the will without some intermediary. But he thinks that by the original constitution of the mind, love causes benevolence, that instinctive desire for the good of a person we love. And hatred causes anger, the, which he thinks, he, he calls it anger, sometimes resentment. He calls, that's the instinctive desire for the harm of someone we hate. And so on your handout, where you see love, there's a little causal arrow, love causes the instinct of benevolence, and for hatred, I made them wiggly to show that they're causal arrows. Um, hatred causes the instinct of anger, and benevolence and anger are intentionally listed underneath the heading instincts to remind you that those are supposed to be instincts. I would have drawn something better there if I knew how. Okay. Now, so we have these two instinctive passions. Love tends to cause benevolence, Hatred tends to cause anger. And those two instinctive passions are direct affections and are motives to the will. They move us to help those we love and harm those we hate, at least some of the time. Things we plainly are disposed to do when we love or hate someone, as Hume acknowledges. However, pride and humility are not similarly linked with any instinctive direct passions. He calls them, quote, pure emotions in the soul, unattended with any desire, and not immediately exciting us to action, close quote. That's from the treatise, but the same sentence occurs in the dissertation on the passions. They are not themselves motives to the will at all. Now, this seems odd. Surely the expectation of humiliation actuates the will. If I expect to feel quite ashamed should I fail at some task, that moves me to try hard to succeed at it, doesn't it? Well, 
Strictly speaking, in Humean terms, the feeling of humility or shame does not itself move me to try hard to succeed. It's partly because Hume understands motivation to action as a causal process. It's got to be something before the action that moves me to act. When I'm moved to avoid future shame, it's rather the expectation of that psychological pain in the future that moves me to try hard now to avoid it. That is, the expectation of that type of pain, like the expectation of any other type of pain, can generate fear, a direct passion. And the fear moves me to act. So the motivating passion is not the humility, but the fear of feeling humility later. We see this more clearly if we contrast this case with other instances of the passion of humility where fear and aversion are not involved. If I feel ashamed now of something I did 20 years ago, that feeling need not move me to do anything. And it need not cause any direct passion that excites me to action. There's nothing in the original constitution of the mind that inevitably links humility with any particular motivating passion. But still, why is Hume so confident that the feeling of humility itself is never a motive? The present interpretation of the distinction between direct and indirect passions, I think, provides an answer. Now, he might be wrong about that, but we can see why he thinks so. Hume asserts that the will arises from the thought of a pleasure or a pain for the agent. The will is one of the immediate effects of pain and pleasure, he says, and exerts itself, here's a little fuller quote, exerts itself when either the good, pleasure in this case, or the absence of the evil, pain, may be attained by any action of the mind or body, close quote. Thus action for Hume, and hence the will, aims at getting pleasure and avoiding pain. Pride and humility, love and hatred, are not expectations of pain or pleasure for oneself, and don't aim at getting or avoiding pleasure or pain, nor are they instinctive drives. Instead, they're evaluative responses to persons, and they rest, as he puts it, with their intentional objects, the persons they are about. They are assessments rather than urges. They don't actuate the will on their own, because in feeling them, we're not focusing our attention on getting pleasure or avoiding pain. As the indirect passions that they are, therefore, they don't constitute characteristic motives to do anything in particular. This is why Hume insists that there must be other passions naturally conjoined with love and hatred, so as to explain the fact that people are typically inclined to seek the good, seek good for those they love and harm for those they hate. Benevolence and anger are distinct from love and hatred themselves because they move beyond mere evaluation of a person to focus on something in the world beyond her and beyond ourselves that can be an object for the will. All right, part F is the moral sentiments. So finally, we turn to morality. So now let's turn to Hume's discussion of the moral sentiments. Given how they are caused and where our attention rests when we feel them, I'm going to argue the moral sentiments are, in fact, indirect. They belong on that side of the tree. Moral evaluations of people and actions, according to Hume, all arise from sentiments of a certain kind. When we 
Hume is a virtue theorist, so he thinks primarily what we judge are people's traits of character, and we judge their actions derivatively as signs of the underlying trait. Um, just so you know why I keep talking about traits. When we judge a trait to be a virtue or a vice, we do so because we feel a characteristic emotion, approval or disapproval, as a result of reflecting on that person's quality of mind from a common or general point of view. In feeling approval or disapproval under these circumstances, we experience a sense of morals. We are aware of the good or evil of that person or trait. The moral sentiment of approbation is a pleasant feeling with its own phenomenological quality that is caused in this particular way by the unbiased consideration of someone's character or the actions to which that character gives rise. And I talked a bit about that yesterday. In adopting the moral point of view, we imagine ourselves in the place of people who are affected by that character trait, and we allow ourselves to come to feel as they feel as a result of the character trait. The moral sentiment of disapprobation is unpleasant and caused in the same way. Hume gives a naturalistic account of the origin of these moral sentiments. We come to feel them through the workings of sympathy, a psychological mechanism that transfers sentiments from one person to another. Sympathy plays a role in other sorts of communication of emotions, quite apart from the causation of moral sentiments. It's what makes the emotions of others contagious, so that when we observe the outward signs of another person's passions, we tend to find ourselves feeling the same way. So if somebody's grimacing in pain and holding their side, we tend to feel uncomfortable as a result. That's not anything to do with a moral sentiment. It's just a, a, a sympathetic transferal. Happens in mobs. Mobs are angry. You join the mob. You find yourself feeling angry. Okay. Hume proposes, however, that sympathy also produces moral sentiments. Moral approval and disapproval, he claims, are triggered by our survey of someone's quality of mind or character, and it does so as follows. We note that the character trait has beneficial or harmful effects on its possessor or on others. And sympathy, quote, takes us so far out of ourselves as to give us the same pleasure or uneasiness in characters which are useful or pernicious as if they had a tendency to our own advantage or loss. Close quote. That's from Treatise Book 3, Part 3, Section 1, Paragraph 11. Consider an example. Suppose you observe someone who is suffering, such as an old woman who endures poverty. Sympathy communicates her suffering to you, and you feel distress or uneasiness. This is not yet a moral sentiment, but just a painful psychological state brought about by sympathy. Suppose you then learn that some other person is the cause of her suffering, but it could have been otherwise. Could be she's suffering because she has a painful disease and nobody caused it. It's just bad luck. But suppose you learn that some other person is the cause of her suffering. For example, an investment broker turned pyramid schemer. <laughs> Can't imagine who I was thinking of. Who has defrauded her of her retirement savings, leaving her penniless. And suppose you can identify a character trait of that individual that is responsible for causing the suffering. In this case, you attribute dishonesty to the broker and regard that trait as the cause of the old woman's ordeal. At this point, your feeling of distress or pain, which was transmitted to you from the victim via sympathy, is directed to the broker's dishonesty. And that feeling, once it's adjusted by adopting the common, the unbiased point of view, becomes moral disapproval of the broker. 
We have seen that the indirect passions are those that shift our attention from the cause of the passion to an object distinct from its cause. Notice that this is clearly what occurs here as well. The cause of your moral disapproval is the old woman's suffering, but the object of your moral disapproval is the broker. The cause is, of course, not just the woman's suffering, but her suffering understood as having been caused by the broker. But that's still distinct from the intentional object of the moral disapproval, which is the broker himself or his dishonest character. The moral sentiment is clearly, in Hume's terms, a passion placed betwixt two ideas of which the one produces it and the other is produced by it." Close quote. Its cause, the cause of the moral sentiment, is distinct from its object and it shifts our attention from the cause to the object. Thus, I claim the moral sentiment is indirect. Furthermore, it is a person evaluating sentiment in the same way that the four main indirect passions, pride, humility, love, and hatred are. It does not direct our attention to any pleasure or pain that we may attain for ourselves or even for others, but rather it assesses a person. Like the indirect passions that Hume discussed in book two of the treatise, the moral sentiment is an evaluation rather than an urge. Okay, part three is the influence of the moral sentiments on action. Here's where I get into trouble. So now we confront a problem. Hume famously says that moral evaluations influence the will. We see this in some characteristic passages which will be familiar to those who have studied Hume's moral philosophy in the treatise. So those are under number two about the influence of the moral sentiments. And I'll just read them out. If morality had naturally no influence on human passions and actions, twere in vain to take such pains to inculcate it. Philosophy is commonly divided into speculative and practical. And as morality is always comprehended under the latter division, the practical, tis supposed to influence our passions and actions. And this is confirmed by common experience, which informs us that men are often governed by their duties and are deterred from some actions by the opinion of injustice and impelled to others by that of obligation. Okay, that's from treatise 311 and also from 311. The merit and demerit of actions frequently contradict and sometimes control our natural propensities." Close quote. But I've just argued that the reason the indirect passions are not themselves motives is that they're indirect. In particular, the four key indirect passions divert our attention away from the pleasures of, and pains that cause them to focus on objects distinct from those causes, namely persons. And as a result, they don't direct our attention to ways of getting pleasure or avoiding pain. On this interpretation, it's not just pride, humility, love, and hatred that are not motives to the will. No indirect passion or sentiment is a motive, at least none that shifts our focus to persons because it has the wrong sort of intentional object to activate the will. So moral sentiments are not motives either, if I'm right that they are indirect and shift our attention to a person. Thus the present interpretation, after solving some interpretive difficulties, gives rise to a further and serious difficulty. It would be easy if Hume had said that by the original constitution of the mind, the moral sentiments too give rise to some direct passions that actuate the will, as he says of love and hatred that by the original constitution of the mind, they give rise to benevolence and anger. But he doesn't say that about the moral sentiments. Now, puzzles about how, on Hume's account, the moral sentiment is able to move us to act 
are not unique to the context of whether the moral sentiment is direct or indirect. There are a number of other reasons to wonder whether and under what circumstances the moral sentiment is a motive. Even though he says it is, when you read the rest of his moral philosophy, it's, hard to, it's quite hard to see how it can function that way or ever does. For one thing, Hume characterizes certain virtues, those virtues that in the treatise he calls natural virtues, as consisting of motives. The virtue consists of a motive, such as parental love, friendship, and lenity, motives of which the moral sentiment then approves. For example, Hume thinks parental love is a virtue. And when a parent tends to his child out of parental love, this virtuous action is motivated by his caring feelings toward his child, not by his moral approval of such actions. The virtuous parent need not even consider whether the action is morally good in order to act well, to act virtuously. He need only be moved by sincere and well-informed devotion to his child. An unbiased observer who watches the parent and knows that's what is motivating him will feel moral approval of someone who has such feelings and is moved by them to act in this way. In actions that exhibit this and other natural virtues, the motive to virtuous action is not the moral sentiment itself, not approval or disapproval, but rather the natural sentiment in question, such as parental love. He says much the same thing about the virtue of friendship. This makes it unclear whether Hume actually regards the moral sentiment as a motive at all. And in fact, there are interpreters who think he doesn't. One of them is Annette Beyer in her most recent book, The Cautious Jealous Virtue. Hume does seem to think the regard to justice and abhorrence of villainy and knavery serve as a motive of just actions. That's obviously Hume's language from, from Treatise 321. And his feeling, this feeling, appears to be a moral disapproval of unjust actions. So it looks like maybe when it comes to the virtue of justice, the, it's the moral sentiment that moves us to do just actions. But that claim is disputed by commentators who identify other sentiments as the Humean motive of justice. It's possible that Hume simply cannot give a consistent account. But I'm going to try to provide a consistent explanation of how the moral sentiment can provide a motive for at least some virtuous actions, even though it's an evaluation rather than an urge. All he says is the moral sentiment does provide a motive, can provide a motive. He doesn't say all our virtuous actions are motivated by the moral sentiment. So all I have to show is there's a way in which it can provide a motive in some cases. The most plausible Humean account of how the moral sentiments cause action follows the pattern of the explanation I gave earlier about how the expectation that we will be ashamed of failure moves us to work hard to succeed now. Remember that the indirect sentiment of humility does not itself move us to act in that case. What moves us is fear of a future painful sentiment, humility, and fear is a direct passion. A parallel account of the moral sentiment would go as follows. Moral disapprobation is a painful sentiment, and it's particularly so when it's directed toward myself, and also when it's compounded and strengthened by the disapproval of others towards me, which sympathy will cause me to share. The pain of self-disapproval, reinforced by the shared disapproval of others toward me, will be sharpened by the consequent pain of shame, 
since according to Hume, one's own vice is a particularly potent cause of humility or shame. Consequently, I will fear or be averse to any future negative assessment I might make of my own character. And this fear or aversion will move me to act virtuously so as to avoid that painful future sentiment. In this way, I will often be governed by my duties. Hume also has much to say about the enjoyment of self-approbation, a feeling which is also reinforced by the approval that others feel toward me, which is also transferred to me by sympathy. I, des um, I desire or hope for this significant pleasure. Hume singles out one's own virtue as well as, as an important source of pride. So we can expect the pleasure of self-approval to be greatly reinforced by the further pleasant emotion of pride. You tend to be proud of your virtues. Thus, in anticipation of these outcomes in the future, the desire for self-approval and the aversion to self-disapproval, supplemented by the desire for pride and aversion to shame, will move me to act in the ways I judge to be morally acceptable. This explanation provides a plausible connection between our moral evaluations and our motives to behave well. Our moral evaluations, as well as being evaluations of persons, have hedonic tone. They are experiences of pleasure and pain. Those that take ourselves as objects are pleasant or painful feelings that routinely provoke other pleasant or painful feelings directed toward the self. Judging myself morally good is thus quite a pleasant experience overall, and so the, the prospect that I would so judge myself in the future if I act in a certain way has great attraction for me. And the prospect that I might judge myself wicked is very aversive. These prospects thus give rise to, a distinct, to, to distinct direct passions, urges, that move us to act. Not always, of course, but certainly sometimes. At times, the urges may be too weak to compete successfully with the various direct passions that may tempt us to behave viciously. But some of the time, they win. Men are often governed by their duties. Now, moral approval of other people, moral approval and disapproval of other people are also pleasant and unpleasant, respectively. And those feelings tend to provoke love and hatred, which are pleasant and unpleasant as well. So one might wonder, why the expectation of feeling the moral sentiments should move us to act virtuously ourselves rather than simply to contemplate others who act virtuously, which might often be a lot less costly for ourselves. You want to get that pleasure of approbation, why go to all the trouble of doing good actions yourself? Just think about somebody else who does and you'll feel the pleasure and you're done. Okay. Why does the desire to feel moral approval move me, uh, moral approval, why does the desire to feel moral approval move us to act virtuously instead of simply moving me to move me to act virtuously instead of simply moving me to observe the virtuous observe the virtuous and approve them? Hume does think we tend to love and seek the company of those of whom we approve morally. That is, we don't like to hang around with people we regard as sleazebags. But so yeah, we do some of that. We do we do look for the chance to approve of others. Um, and if we are able to find virtuous companions and they tolerate our presence, that will be one source of the pleasure of approval. But two factors would make the desire for moral self-approval a particularly powerful motive to fulfill our own moral duties. 
First, we can rather reliably give ourselves the pleasure of self-approbation by choosing to act well, but we cannot readily bring about the virtuous action of others and its attendant approbation, or at least not nearly as often or as reliably. At times, we may successfully exhort others to virtue, influence our children, and so on, of course. And we will be moved to make those efforts to bring about the good actions of others, which will give us feelings of approval and admiration. But the most direct route to producing in ourselves the pleasure of approbation, the one means over which we have the most control, is to act virtuously ourselves. And secondly, of the greatest and of the greatest importance, our prospective self-evaluations are particularly powerful sources of motives because we're trapped in our own company, so to speak, though not for the most part in the company of others. Moral self-approval and self-disapproval are likely to be persistent, as is their attendant pride and shame. I know that the gratification I may feel in my own virtuous character will stay with me, regardless of whether I have any chance to contemplate the virtue of others, as will the self-esteem, the pride I gain from knowing that I have exhibited virtue. Consequently, the hope of having such constant and long-lasting satisfaction can be a powerful motive. The other side of the coin also shows the power of expected self-evaluation to influence action. The fear that I will have to live with myself, as we say, after I do something vicious, that I must endure self-disapproval and shame for the rest of my life, is a powerful motive to refrain from doing any such thing, motive that many cultures emphasize. <laughs> We have seen that the moral sentiments are indirect passions, assessments rather than urges, and so are not themselves motives to act. Yet they have hedonic qualities. They are either pleasant or painful. And that makes them potential causes of desire and aversion, hope and fear, which are urges that have pleasure and pain as their objects. Thus the moral sentiments do produce motives and so are capable of being profound influences on our behavior. Have I got another? Couple of minutes? Okay. Then I want to do the coda, otherwise I would skip it, but it's kind of my favorite part. So, so here's the coda. A perennial issue in moral philosophy is whether a thing is good because we human beings value it, or we value it because it's good. Some of Hume's predecessors, such as Samuel Clark, who was a moral rationalist, claim that we value things because they are antecedently good. And valuing on their view is a response to the goodness that is already present in the world. Hume's view, on the contrary, is that things are good because we value them. For this approach to succeed in a philosophy like Hume's, the attitude of valuing must be explained in empirical and natural terms, without smuggling in presuppositions about what is antecedently good. Some have tried to explain valuing in terms of desiring. But such efforts up to Hume's time, for example by Hobbes, were too simple. Uh, plenty of people today have also tried, and their efforts are more complex, but still in that mold of trying to explain valuing in terms of desiring. Not all desiring is valuing, for sometimes we want what we regard as bad. Hume though, Hume, though he shares with Hobbes and with naturalists of our own day the goal of psychologizing evaluation, takes a different approach. He does not think we can analyze the valuing of persons in terms of desires and the other direct passions. In valuing persons, we don't ask, what will she do for me? 
which is the attitude of desire and aversion, hope, and fear. But Hume does think that valuing of persons is a natural psychological state that is quite familiar and can be explained within his science of the mind using no prior conception of goodness beyond pleasure. For Hume, valuing persons is not desiring or desiring to desire, as more recent philosophers would have it, but the having of indirect passions. And the moral sentiments are just two of the many such passions that are common to human beings. Thus, he offers us a way in which the human mind, functioning in familiar ways, imparts both non-moral and moral value to persons. Thank you. That's one way they differ. Okay. And they also, oh, okay. Just one way. So sure. really it's the having of felt quality that my question is. Okay. So like one major problem in philosophy of mind and metaphysics is how to reconcile scientific naturalism on the one hand with phenomenology on the other hand, that mental states have felt qualities. So I'm wondering if Hume recognizes the problem of being on the one hand a scientific naturalist and on the other hand thinking that emotions qua mental states have phenomenologies. And if he doesn't, why not? Um, it's a good question, and the answer is not evident. Uh, uh, here's what I want to say, and once I start saying it, I'll figure out whether I really think it's right. Um, Hume is not willing to commit himself about the, ex about the existence of an external world. So I think the problem of scientific naturalism, uh, combining scientific naturalism with, with qualia, with felt qualities of, of uh, um, of, with, with what it's like type qualities has to do, and now you correct me if I'm wrong, it has to do with trying to reconcile um, what we believe about neurons and, and uh, neurotransmitters and other things in the physical world independent of our experiences and, what we, and our felt qualities. And how, how can you explain felt qualities when you think that all there is in the world is material stuff? And in a way, Hume dodges that problem, I think, by just not committing himself about the existence of the external world. So he's, he's giving us a science of the mind within those parameters. Here is, we have all of this empirical experience, evidence, uh, collected experience of the human race of, what, of our mental states. And of course, he's got no conception of the unconscious. So our mental states are just what we're aware of. And he's trying to figure out the causal laws that govern those awarenesses. Not to, he's not at all trying to connect them with what happens in the brain. So then it really is a radically different notion of scientific naturalism. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is, and I hope that's right. <laughs> yeah, so speaking of the unconscious, uh, my mom is a psychoanalyst. Um, I will resist the snide remark that came to my mind. <laughs> Because I'm sure you've heard it before. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> you don't know what I... <laughs> All right, I won't. You must know what they say about the children of psychoanalysts, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I know what I say about them. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you what I... 
you know, how she, so let me give you an example of a desire I have, a passion, and what she would say about it. Um, so I have a desire to be a good philosopher. And I, this is not, probably not what she would really say, but this is the kind of thing she would say. Well, um, you, you desire to be a philosopher because you really want to vindicate yourself in the eyes of your father, right? <laughs> that's, that's the object of my desire. You know, that's not what it causes me. That's not what I'm thinking about, right? And then, well, well Mom, you know, what, is, what is the cause of it? Well, your introductory philosophy professor really um, resembled your father in important ways. Right? <laughs> um, so thank, thank you, Mom. So, so what, do you do? <laughs> what does my mom say? Well, my mom says that, first of all, the object of our passions are not necessarily what we think about right, when we're having a passion. And the causes of our passions are not necessarily transparent to the conscious mind. Um, so my question is, if we take any of this seriously, then what are we supposed to think of Hume? Because when, when, when you talk about Hume's psychology, and it sounds so Newtonian, you know, like this causes that, everything's on the surface. Uh, can we really take this seriously, close quote? <laughs> <laughs> well, it looks like a competition. <laughs> do we take Freud seriously, or do we take Hume seriously? I think you're right that they're incompatible. Because Hume is taking the uh, data to consist of our conscious mental states. And Freud is postulating that there are, and, and so he, Hume thinks there are going to be causal, there are causal relations among our conscious mental states, and those are the only kind of causal relations that it occurs to him to look at. He, there may also be physiological causes of our mental states, and he says, mm, you know, let's leave the anatomists to look at that. He, so, and those we aren't conscious of, but what he doesn't, what, what I think didn't occur to him, really, um, that, that is, I think Freud was very original. What I think didn't occur to Hume was that there could be mental states, that is, desires, fears, hopes, and so on, so they're just in structure, just like the conscious ones, but we don't actually feel them. I think he would have found that to be nonsensical. Um, so what you think about Hume's theory of the mind is going to depend on what you think about Freud, I guess. Right? If you think Freud's insight, that, that Freud had a, a, a fantastic insight that we do have unconscious desires, beliefs, fears, and that greatly illuminates the nature of the human mind, then you'll think that Hume, poor Hume, he was, he was uh, benighted. He was writing in a time when that insight wasn't available and he didn't come up with it. If you think that there's something very puzzling about the thesis, that we have desires and beliefs that are really desires and really beliefs, but we don't feel them, we're completely unconscious of them, um, and they are the real explanation, then you think that Hume overlooked something very important. I was hoping one of our psychologists would Typical way I guess to understand his morality is that he takes the spectrum. 
pictorial view on morality. The, the, the third person perspective of me judging somebody else is the central moral act and, and informs what it is to be a moral person, the, the, the emotional reactions we have to that. Um, it doesn't, no, it doesn't inform what it is to be a moral person. It just, the spectatorial perspective is what gives rise to our moral evaluations, our judgments. Right. Okay. So uh, to be a moral person, you've got to be engaged yeah, with it. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, and that so, so we come to appreciate what moral evaluation is through looking at other people. Okay, that's helpful. And I think it's always been perplexing for me how to think about evaluating oneself or take what I would consider to be more of a first personal perspective on myself than a third personal perspective. And I really enjoyed your um, account of things because it helped me to, the, the way that you were able to break down the emotions and the causes and the objects of them helped me to start to think about that in a more complex way than I had. I guess the, the question I continue to have is when I take those moral assessments that you know I, I, I discovered through uh, evaluating other people and now apply them to myself, am I essentially doing the same thing to myself that I did looking at other people? Am I basically taking a third person perspective upon myself? Or is something new happening? Is there the birth of a more um, intensely first personal sort of reflection that stands in sort of contrast with the spectatorial? Um, yeah. The answer to that is actually pretty straightforward. I think we're supposed to be doing the same thing. Hume thinks in evaluating yourself, if you do it properly, you are taking the spectator's point of view toward yourself. You do pay attention to how your trait affects you. A lot of the virtues are, are character traits that are advantageous to or immediately agreeable to the, the possessor yourself. But you have to regard your trait in all of its, you have to regard all the, all the effects, the, the full impact of your trait. And so you've got to step, he says, you step out of yourself. Yeah. Takes you out of yourself. So. Um, He thinks taking up the common point of view is difficult all the time. There are all kinds of obstacles to successfully taking up the common point of view, which is why people often do a very bad job of moral judgment. Uh, he, he acknowledges the difficulties in judging ourselves. And that's, I talked yesterday about why he thinks we need to get in the habit of regularly reviewing our own character as if from another person's perspective. He says, it seems to be about reputation. I want to know what others think about me. But what I really want to know is how to assess me. And that's hard. So I need to, to think, so reputation is, is, is a help. It's useful. And of course, I don't just depend upon my actual reputation. I imagine what others would think of me if I behaved in this way. And if I re as soon as I, that clarifies it for me. So I get out of my own biases and can, can ev evaluate myself. So he acknowledges that difficulty for the self. But he also acknowledges a lot of other difficulties. I don't know whether he thinks it's uniquely difficult. He might, because he emphasizes reputation a lot, and seemingly for that reason. But he says it's very hard to, to make a, a, a genuine moral evaluation of your enemy. If you're in battle against an enemy, it's very hard to grant that your enemy is courageous. Because you like to think of your enemy as a rotten son of a bitch, right? That's in, in battle, that's exactly how you tend to conceive of your enemy. But 
if you ever get a moment's peace to reflect and you can manage to enter into the common point of view, you could recognize, you could feel approval for that person's courage, even though the more courageous your enemy, the worse for you. So it's, it's difficult all the time, but he may well think it's uniquely difficult for self-evaluation. No, I don't but think so. At the same time, I have trouble seeing why his account doesn't succeed in doing that. Um, <laughs> well, and many... What it gives us are okay. you know, his bunch of psychological mechanisms which explain why we come to have a warm glow about some things and not about others. Um, I'm trying to remember the exact closing words of the last sentence of Bill Cody, who said something about, and that's how we you know, establish value in the world or something. Um, and I'm saying, well, on your account, no, we don't. Well, whether you think Hume succeeds in giving an account of value in the world as opposed to merely that psychological process of judging, of evaluation, depends in part about what you mean by in the world. <laughs> that is, he is often, Hume is often read as, I mean, he's certainly a moral anti-realist in the sense that, well, I hedged that in my book actually, and said, because of Wittgensteinian concerns about whether he would even understand the claim of anti-realism or grant it any traction. But, but he's certainly not a moral realist in the usual sense. If by a moral realist you mean somebody who regards moral properties as having a reality that's independent of human psychological responses. So, yeah, so if you think something is in the world only if its existence is independent of human psychological responses, then on Hume's view, value is not in the world. But if you think that there are um, relational properties of things where one of the relata is psychological responses of people, then if that can be in the world, then value is in the world. So it's, not, it's just not going to have reaction independence, that's right. But the way Hume talks about virtue and goodness, moral goodness, strongly suggests that he thinks, I mean, he even says at one point in the essay, The Skeptic, um, the fact that moral properties are dependent on human reactions, this is not a literal quote, but it's a, it's a pretty decent paraphrase. The fact that moral reactions are dependent, uh, moral properties are dependent on our, on our reactions doesn't make them any less real. Okay, so I think he's on the side of understanding relational properties that, that uh, so the property of being good is ultimately 
um, I think, for Hume, although he, he won't come out and say what it is, but it seems ultimately that it's the property of being the sort of trait that evokes a feeling of moral approbation from those who project their, themselves imaginatively into the common point of view. Okay? Now that's a property, but it's definitely a relational property, and it can't exist unless you have human beings having reactions. And he seems to think, well, that's real enough. It's real enough for my money. So but you may not think that's real. I mean, what do you think about colors, right? It's very close. I think Hume's conception of, of value is, is very close on his own account to, to, conception, to secondary quality conceptions. It's hard to straighten all of those details out because what he says about the primary-secondary quality distinction is not very favorable. <laughs> but in the end, I think he regards um, those who claim that secondary qualities are reaction-dependent, he regards them as right, that that's really um, an insight, that's progress. And then he says a couple of times at length that, that moral properties are like that. So, so what do you want to say about redness? Is it real? If you want to say no, then you'll say, for Hume, moral goodness isn't real either. Hume, though, doesn't want to say that. Yes, I, uh, this, I, I think this relates to his worry. And uh, my worry is about actions and partisanship. And certainly, um, Hume worried about that in his political writings. He worried about enthusiasm, factions, uh, partisanship. And I wonder whether he can help us distinguish between his spectator and an actual partisan. And this is where my worry comes from. Yesterday you told us that we moved from a sort of particular biased view to a, the unbiased spectator view through discourse and conversation. And Now, um, I don't want you to forget what you want, we're going to say, but I want to stipulate that please. that stuff about discourse and conversation comes in the inquiry concerning the principles of morals. That's later, and it's not in the treatise. Okay. Go ahead. So, to be fair to him, but if he's if he is presenting us with a coherent position, then somehow these these things have to fit together. I hope. Or well, I we'll see. Um, but okay. So, um, if he thinks we're we can move toward this unbiased view by relating to other people, learning from other people, how they think of us, what sort of reputation we um, have um, potentially in front of them. Um, it, 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 it occurs to me that most of our conversations are with people who are like-minded, people who are similar to us, and, and, and it seems to me that Hume would, would grant that. Um, and, it, and, and so, in many ways, most of our understandings of what it means, what our reputation is, who we are, comes from a conversation and discourse with people um, who are, you might say, um, partisans, people who are in our faction. And, and so, it, it, so many of these ideas of benevolence, uh, many of the ideas of what a common point of view could be, seems to come from our own particular community. And, and I wonder how um, Hume can, can help us out of that problem. Um, doesn't, doesn't his account of good and bad, his account of benevolence itself, 
exacerbate the problem of factions and partisanship? I think that's an excellent question, and it's one of the reasons that I don't like EPM as much as I like the treatise. And very often, students are only exposed to EPM, and they come away thinking that Hume had this kind of clubby attitude, that we just hang out with, who, who are our usual associates? There are usually a lot of people like us, and we just reinforce all our prejudices. And, and he's just not explicit enough, or maybe he, does, he hasn't even really introduced the idea in EPM. In the treatise, he goes into a lot of detail about how you learn to adopt the common point of view, and he doesn't have that stuff about conversation and discourse. Instead, he's very cognizant of the limitations of sympathy. He says, sympathy is a mecha psychological mechanism, and in the treatise he breaks it down into ideas and impressions and relations between them, and how an idea of somebody's suffering becomes enlivened by being associated with the self and becomes an impression of their suffering, and you actually feel distress. And so he's got a whole mechanistic, but, but at least analytical account of how that can happen. And then he says, well, now, I think that sympathy is the source of our moral sentiments, but sympathy is, is, is filled with traps because it's so much easier for sympathy to work between people who are like one another. And how do I ever manage to sympathize with people on the other side of the globe who are being caught in the slave trade and stuff like that? And, and he says, that's a problem. And what we have to do in entering into the common point of view is not talk to people. He doesn't say that in the treatise. Rather, what we have to do is exercise our imaginations with great vigor and get out of ourselves. And if a person is different, if a person is different from us in culture, in gender, in language, in social status, sympathy is not going to be as effective. It can work. He thinks it can work between any two human beings if they know, if, if they know about one another's feelings. But I'm going to feel less distressed about the suffering of somebody who's of a different culture, race, language, and lives far away than about my neighbor next door. And he was very explicit about that in the treatise. And he says, how do we overcome this? We have to really cultivate our imaginations. We have to think, OK, this activity that's going on, whatever it is, the slave trade or whatever's going on, has an impact on human beings. Imagine myself very close to the activity that's going on. And rather than hanging out with my partisans and absorbing their attitudes, imagine the feelings of every individual who's affected by a character trait or by a policy identify with those people and come to feel as they feel. And that's going to give you the moral sentiment. So I think he's better off in the treatise. Doesn't mean it's going to solve all the problems. But don't, don't the naturalistic mechanisms that he's describing work against that? In the, it, we're developing our, ang our hatred and our anger from um, things that are close. Um, wouldn't we feel sympathy for those the, the the little pains of our fellow partisans, and, uh, and I'm, I'm thinking about, I'm a political science prof, so I think, I'm thinking about, you know, if you're a Tea Partier, you understand pain in a somewhat different way than if you're working in the Obama administration. And so the way you're going to understand who's in pain and who's not, um, at least on, on Hume's account, I'm, I'm suspicious that this leap into this um, great imagination just doesn't seem like it would, it would uh, well, that's the worry, that it's too big a stretch of the imagination, and it's unlikely to work. 
And that's a, that's a criticism that Hume doesn't grapple with. Or it might work, but then Hume might be wrong about how we actually come to our moral um, uh, considerations. Well, what he, if we come to our moral evaluations on the basis of partisan associations, then we're not doing it right. And the sentiment we feel, we think it's the moral sentiment, but it's not. <laughs> That's how he accounts for, for <laughs> what? <laughs> That's how he accounts for a certain percentage of moral error, so there's room in his system for moral error. Um, so if you hang out only with, and that's one of the reasons that Hume is very opposed to parties and factions in his political writings. He goes on and on about how evil parties and factions are. And he thinks part of that is, is that it's mob thinking. He thinks in a mob, if the mob is angry and you aren't angry, you enter, you join the mob and you'll become angry by sympathy because proximity and similarity of, of other people enables you to feel what they feel much more easily. And that's why you have to cultivate the practice of entering into the common or general point of view. You have to back off from that. And it's only the ba when you've backed off that what you feel is actually a moral sentiment as opposed to another kind of sentiment. And he is very adamant in his political essays and in his history of England that faction and partisanship are bad influences. And I, I think that's one of the reasons that people cease to adequately imagine and adequately sympathize. Excuse my ignorance, but does, does Hume at all talk about how one cultivates these things, how one practices them, so that one can be better at it? other than just to say, try really hard? <laughs> no. um, your ignorance is not currently on display. <laughs> he says only a little. He does say we need to think, we need to force ourselves to think about the various people who are directly affected by the trait that we evaluate. Not just the people we know, not just the people who resemble us, but whoever is directly affected. So we need to not leave people out. We also need to get adequate factual information about what effect the trade is having on people. And he says, apart from that, not much except that it's a matter of discerning and distinguishing between different emotions that, the, that you are having at the same time. So he says, it's hard for me to admit that someone I hate has a beautiful voice. Now that's not a moral judgment, it's an aesthetic judgment, but he thinks there's a parallel there. If I hate the person, it's going to be very difficult for me to grant that he has a beautiful voice. But if I've reached the, a high enough level of discernment, I can pull apart my feelings of hatred toward the person from my assessment of his voice. And it's going to be like that with moral assessment. So I can resent or resist someone as my political competitor and still reflect on that person's character and recognize that this is an individual of integrity, if that's the case. But he, but he doesn't talk about how one achieves that. Now, how you, how, he doesn't, I, I think in the treatise at least, he doesn't think there's much one can say about it. It's a, it's a, it's a hands-on process. 
So it's not as if he can give us a list of instructions. Um, he, he does talk about, about taking a, a broader view and also a narrower view, um, not always thinking from the perspective of everyone, but thinking from the perspective of particular individuals who are affected. And, and uh, otherwise, I guess he thinks it, it responds to practice, and there's not a whole lot more instruction he can give. Well, I should have stuck with a cruder example, I suppose, because the fear of swine flu brings to mind all of these crowd effects and all of these other things. But he was, he's not trying. You're right that it's a simplistic set of distinctions. He's trying to get at the heart of these concepts. What is fundamental to fear that distinguishes fear from hope, fear from shame, and so on? And so he's not working on the details. And, and just to say that the cause of fear is the same as its object, maybe that's already overly simple. Because what causes my fear of swine flu? I said, well, the prospect of getting swine flu, that's what causes it. Um, and in my, there might be a whole lot of additional causes. I fear that I'll get it. I fear that I'll give it to my family. I'll, I fear that if I get it, not only will I have pain and suffering, but I won't be able to teach my classes, and my students will end up confused. And <laughs> or maybe they won't, they'll have to drop the course and they won't have enough credits. And so right, there's a lot of different things you can fear, and it obviously is going to be more complicated than that. But I think what Hume is trying to do is, is a good thing that I think anybody doing psychology of the emotions should do, which is, Try to figure out what the hell these things are in the first place. What do we mean by fear? And 
Hume's only strategy to find out what we mean by fear, since he, he thinks fear is a simple, it's a simple impression. He can't give us an analysis of, of fear. All he can give us is an account of why we call a particular feeling fear rather than something else. And why we call it fear, he thinks, is that it's the expectation of some kind of pain, whether psychological or physical, with um, the, a, a belief that it's fairly probable. That's what makes it fear. And that means we conceive of something as painful, and we believe it might well happen to us, and those things cause this feeling, this, this je ne sais quoi. Well, I fear it is <laughs>